We are starting a new study in the book of James, and James is all about living out your faith. James is a doer, and he's going to challenge us to live out what we say we believe, not to be merely a hearer of the word who deludes himself, but to be a doer. And this first study is all about tests. How do we make it through trials in life? How do we stand in our faith through the tests? We'll find out more today on Walk in Truth. Welcome to Walk in Truth with Michael Lance. Walk in Truth is a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship. It's our goal to build up believers and to reach out with God's truth to all people. And now, here's Pastor Michael. There's an interesting scripture in 1 Corinthians, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, in chapter 15, which is the most exhaustive chapter on the resurrection. Just flip over there, there to 1 Corinthians 15. One of the resurrection appearances that happened that's recorded after the Lord appeared to Peter, as we talked about on Sunday, was that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 6, most of whom remain until now. Some have fallen asleep or died. Then Jesus appeared, 1 Corinthians 15, 7, to James, then to all the apostles. It's believed by scholars, since it says in John 7, 5, that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, it says that Jesus appeared to James. And then in the book of Acts and in Galatians and other places, James is the leader of the Jerusalem church. James became a believer, but it would appear only after his resurrected brother appeared to him. Now, I say half-brother because Jesus was born of a virgin. But Mary and Joseph, after the birth of Jesus, did come together as a couple, and other children were born to Mary and Joseph, brothers and sisters. Now, if you grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, this may bother you a little bit because you've probably been taught about the perpetual virginity of Mary. That Mary was a perpetual virgin and she was that way her whole life. But that is not the case. And uh, the book of Mark, chapter 6, verse 3, the book of Matthew in chapter 13, I think it's around verse 55, says that Jesus had siblings. He had brothers He had sisters. Now, they were technically half-brothers and sisters because they came into the world in the normal way that babies are born when a husband and wife come together. But Jesus was the exception. He was the God-man. Can you imagine growing up with Jesus? Let's say that you're James and you're eating your Captain Crunch in the morning with Jesus. Imagine all that James could have reflected on and experienced as he grew up with Jesus. Jesus would have been his older brother, Jesus was the firstborn, so he had some of those privileges. But as you grew up with Jesus in the household, just imagine all that James could have reflected on in what he saw in Jesus, and yet he would not believe in Jesus even after Jesus had done multitudes of miracles, had proved who he was, his brother would not believe. Do you know why I think that may be especially hard for a brother? Is when you grow up in the same household with somebody, what do you have? Sibling rivalry. It's got to be hard to grow up with a perfect brother. I mean, I know some of our brothers and sisters think they're perfect, but Jesus actually was perfect. So it had to be hard. 
Can you imagine mom and dad saying, why can't you be like your brother? <laughs> that would be hard to live up to, right? So I don't know how it felt for James and, and Jude and others. Um, Jude actually, in the book of Jude, which is right before Revelation, take a peek at it. In his opening, and this is another half-brother of Jesus. His name is Jude, right before Revelation. When he introduces himself, he doesn't say Jude from the sacred womb of Mary, brother of Jesus, here's my pedigree, here's my resume, here's my business card. Can you imagine? I mean, I took, uh, I had the privilege of uh, being part of a group that went to Israel just recently. And every opportunity at a location that can be exploited for its religious significance is exploited. But these men, James and Jude, look at Jude 1, verse 1, says, Jude says, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ and I'm the brother of James to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. And he says, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. No mention that I'm the brother of, half-brother of Jesus. No mention from the sacred womb of Mary. Just a desire to be known as the bondservant of Jesus Christ. Now, if you turn back to the book of James, one thing that we learn about James as an individual is that he was known as James the Just. He got that reputation actually from a record we have from the historian Eusebius. I'm quoting from R. Kent Hughes when he says, the historian Eusebius records the testimony of Hegesippus that James used to enter the temple, quoting now, from Eusebius, and be found kneeling and praying for forgiveness for the people, so that his knees grew hard like a camel's because of his constant worship of God, kneeling and asking for forgiveness for the people, maybe for himself too. So from his excessive righteousness, he was called the just, or James the just, or some people say he was called old camel knees because of the amount of time he spent in the temple praying. How many times do you think in prayer James reflected on his childhood? How many times do you think he reflected on his unbelief in his, his own brother? I mean, it had to be hard for him, but he had to have a good measure of regret. One writer said that James was probably a man that bloomed later in life. He was a flower that bloomed late even though he had great privilege. And when we have great privilege, when we get exposed to the truth at a young age and we reject it and we push it away and we bear the consequences of it, we can live with regret. I heard a testimony from somebody recently that got saved in their 50s and they said they reg regretted the decades that, that slipped past them because they couldn't redeem those for the Lord. So those of us who get saved a little later in life, we kind of wish that, you know, we had, we had had those years back to serve the Lord. And we also have a measure of regret because if you're like me, I made a whole host of mistakes when I was not uh, walking with the Lord. And so there's this combination there. James describes himself as the bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word bondservant is doulos, as I mentioned. In Hebrew, it's eved. And when a person in the Old Testament, this is recorded in Exodus 21, after they served their time for their master, if they wanted to stay with their master because they loved them 
and they didn't want to leave, they would perform a ceremony. They would take something like an awl, like an ice pick. They would put the servant, the voluntary slave, against the threshold of a door. The threshold of a home is where you made a covenant. Uh, a husband will carry his bride across the threshold, speaks of a covenant. They would take an awl, and they would pierce the ear of that voluntary slave. The message of the Eved or the Dulas is my ear will always be open to my master's voice. When my master calls, I will obey him. This is Dulas, bond servant, servant or Eved, a voluntary slave of the Lord. Here's what else it means. It means I will forever be attached to this house. I have voluntarily said, as for me and my house, I will serve my master. I will serve the Lord. I'm always attached to this house and my ear is always open to the voice or the command of my master. I will not say to him, well, I have a list of things that I do not do. I don't mow lawns. I don't do dishes. I don't do windows. But I will do this. No, Jesus said, if you call me Lord, Lord, then you do what I say. That's what the book of James is about. If you're going to call him Lord, then be a voluntary servant. Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. James watched that. He watched the humility of his brother. How could he do any less? And how can you and I? If Jesus was willing to humble himself for his people, why can't I humble myself for my wife? Why can't I take an extra moment for other people who might need me? Why can't I have that attitude in myself that was also in Christ Jesus? That although he existed in very nature, God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And he humbled himself, Jesus did, and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what your Lord did. And he said, look, a servant is not greater than his master. If you want to be like me, then you need to follow me. And James learned that as, of course, as time went by, as the resurrected Christ appeared to him, James became a servant of Christ. And he said something like this, I'm going to redeem every single moment I've got until I go home to be with my Lord, I'm going to redeem every moment I have for the kingdom of God. And so James is writing to the 12 tribes. Uh, although some try to spiritualize this, I would just beg to differ. The 12 tribes are the 12 tribes of Israel. There's no other way around it. Who are dispersed abroad. They are part of what's called in a technical term, the diaspora. Many times in the history of Israel, there was a dispersion of the Jewish people. In 722 BC, it happened to the northern kingdom when Assyria attacked them and they were dispersed and many taken to captivity. In 586 BC, when Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem, then there was a dispersion of Jews and they went into Babylon for 70 years of captivity. In the time of Jesus... They, many of them were, of course, in the land of Israel, but the Romans were dominating. And in 70 AD, when the temple fell under the Romans, there was another dispersion. And the Jewish people as a whole did not return to the land of Israel until 1948, from AD 70. 
1948. You want to talk about a dispersion of the Jewish people? Hey, listening family, if you're new to Walk in Truth, my name is Michael Lance. I'm the senior pastor of Living Truth Christian Fellowship in the city of Corona in Southern California. Hey, recently I've written a book called Suit Up, Putting on the Full Armor of God. It shows you how to put on what God has provided so that you can stand strong in the spiritual battle and stand strong against temptation with the resources that God provides. This book is available at the store at walkintruth.com. Go to walkintruth.com, click on the store, click on the book. I'll get you a signed copy and your donation will help support Walk in Truth and help us reach out to more people. Again, the book is Suit Up, Putting on the Full Armor of God, available at walkintruth.com. That's walkintruth.com. James is writing to the 12 tribes, uh, although some try to spiritualize this, I would just beg to differ. The 12 tribes are the 12 tribes of Israel. There's no other way around it. Who are dispersed abroad. They are part of what's called, in a technical term, the diaspora. Many times in the history of Israel, there was a dispersion of the Jewish people. In 722 BC, it happened to the northern kingdom when Assyria attacked them and they were dispersed and many taken to captivity. In 586 BC, when Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem, then there was a dispersion of Jews and they went into Babylon for 70 years of captivity. In the time of Jesus, they, many of them were, of course, in the land of Israel, but the Romans were dominating. And in 70 AD, when the temple fell under the Romans, there was another dispersion. And the Jewish people as a whole did not return to the land of Israel until 1948, from AD 70 to 1948. You want to talk about a dispersion of the Jewish people? Well, that is what has happened. And yet we've seen the land now, with Jews going back there, we've seen a re-blossoming of the land. And so the, the literal greeting is to the 12 tribes in the diaspora, Jews who live outside of the land of Israel who have been uh, scattered. There was a scattering that happened at the death of Stephen. You can note in the book of Acts chapter 8, verse 1, and the people were scattered. And here's what happened. When the people were scattered after the death of Stephen, they went to Judea and Samaria and they went to other places. And there were other uh, Jewish people who had not become Christians who were also scattered for other reasons. And the Jewish Christians, remember the early church was Jewish. The first 3,000 people that got saved on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached were all Jewish. 3,000 Jewish people were the early church. The early church was Jewish. The door to the Gentiles doesn't happen, open to the Gentiles until Acts 10 with the house of Cornelius. So you need to know that these early Jewish Christians were a very persecuted bunch. They had embraced a Messiah that was largely rejected by the nation. They had been dispersed out of Jerusalem because of persecution. They had gone to neighboring lands 
only to be rejected by their own people, to knock on a door and say, will you please help us? And someone say to you, who was also Jewish, get out of here. You believe in that would-be Messiah. No, thank you. And a slam of the door in your face. They became destitute, many of them homeless. They had nowhere to go. And, they had, and a lot of this was the consequence of belief in Jesus as the Messiah. Some of the parallel examples are people who are in countries where the name of Jesus or belief in Christianity can mean your own personal demise. You could be uh, excommunicated from the family or even threatened with death. This was the plight of the early church. It was not easy to be a Christian. You didn't have a lot of people patting you on the back saying, hey, brother, come on in. We'll make a meal for you. It wasn't that way. And so this group of people dispersed abroad were going through severe trials. They needed some pastoral encouragement, hence the book of James. And when James writes verse two, he says something shocking. He says to his brethren, his Jewish brethren, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now, imagine that you get a copy of the book of James. You're a, a Jewish person who's believed in Jesus as the Messiah. You're somewhere out on the outskirts, hungry, you know, thirsty. Maybe your family's not doing well. You get a copy of the letter of the book of James, and you're wondering if you can hang on for another day. And James says to you, consider it all joy when you go through problems, my brother. Consider it What? Consider it pure joy, NIV, when you encounter various trials. Has James gone from camel knees to camel brain? What do you mean, consider it all joy when I encounter various trials? I mean, how many of you can say the last time that you went through a terrible situation, persecution, loss of job, something difficult, you started saying, and I've got joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. Your family members would start looking at you and saying, what? Or can you imagine you're working on your garage and you hit your finger with a hammer and it's pulsating and you're saying, <laughs> this is... And you guys have all seen those silly cable commercials where somebody sits in gum or walks into a window or has soda spilling all over them. <laughs> is that what James is saying? That I'm supposed to look at my trials with some silly plastic laughter smile? I don't think so. I don't think that's what James is saying at all. But I'm saying that James is saying that when you consider your trials, you need to do some recalculation based upon this, that you know God, you know the Messiah, you know how God has a way of taking even a cross and using it for his greatest victory. And so you need to reconsider how you handle trials. You need to recalculate them as an asset instead of a deficit. 
Now, who in the world would ever have that mindset to see a trial as an asset instead of a deficit? To do a recalculation when I go through a test. Do you know that God does test your faith? Genesis 22.1 says that God tested Abraham. Peter says that some tests are necessary to make your faith more precious than gold in the fire, refined in the fire. And James says, look, I want you to do, I already know how you feel. And James experienced some of this, I'm sure, himself. So he said, I want you to consider these trials differently, my brethren. By the way, my brethren is used 14 times in the book of James. And he said, I want you to consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. If you have a King James, it says diverse temptations. The Greek word is peresmos. It could mean an internal problem like uh, a temptation to sin. But here, James is talking more about an external issue. Loss of job. Finances are not doing well. You're sick and you don't know how things are going to go. Relationships are strained and you're wondering what's going to happen. These are the kinds of things that James is saying. And he's saying, look, when you go through these diverse temptations, just like Luke, uh, uh, excuse me, Philippians 2, 5 says, it says, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have this attitude in you. That's what James is talking about. He's saying, look, I'm, I'm preaching about attitude adjustment here. He doesn't say if you encounter various trials, verse 2. He says, would you note it? When you encounter various trials. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when, when it comes to trials. And it's a matter of how many times a day. <laughs> amen? Life is just that way. Nobody wanted to say amen on that point. You're like, you're like. But it's true. We go through these trials. Lloyd Ogilvie, who uh, served as a uh, chaplain in the White House for a while, has an incredible perspective on this. And, and I've read this before, but I think it's so worth reading. Several years ago, the Presbyterian pastor, Lloyd John Ogilvie, underwent the worst year of his life. His wife had undergone five major surgeries plus radiation and chemotherapy. Several of his staff members had departed. Large problems loomed and discouragement assaulted his feelings. But he wrote, the greatest discovery that I've made in the midst of all difficulties is that I can have joy when I can't feel like it. I can have an artisan joy. When I had every reason to feel beaten, I felt joy. In spite of everything, God gave me the conviction of being loved and the certainty that nothing can separate me from him. It was not happiness, gush, or jolliness, but a constant flow of the Spirit through me. At no time did he give me the easy confidence that everything would work out as I wanted it in my own timetable, but that he was in charge and would give me and my family enough courage for each day. He would give me grace. Joy is always the result of that. Joy is always the result of saying, I know my Redeemer lives. 
And if this is the worst that's going to happen to me this side of heaven, I can even count it all joy because I know he's going to take me deeper in the trial. He's going to make me more like him. And so we need to recalculate when we find ourselves in various trials. Joy is not necessarily a happy skipping around when I'm facing a trial, but joy is a deep-seated reality that I know that Jesus lives in me, that I know that there's going to be spiritual value even though what I'm going through is uncomfortable. I use the analogy of exercise. There are many times when I do not want to exercise my flesh is saying, don't do it, Michael. Just have some frozen yogurt, sit on your chair, and kick back. And it sounds so good. Push-ups or a Pop-Tart. Which would you choose? Right? It's either a simple push of the toaster down or it's down, up, down, up. One is fun. I just got to wait like a minute for that Pop-Tart. Oh. <laughs> the push-up is all effort. Grunting. Creaking. <laughs> right? But here's what I know. I know the... Outcome of the push-up is greater strength in the body. Triceps, chest, shoulders, back. And an added benefit of being able to show your guns when, <laughs> right? Okay, not very spiritual. Now, the Pop-Tart will also produce, quote-unquote, fruit in your life. Probably not in your guns. Y'all know what I'm saying? Okay. I'm not saying that from time to time you can't have your Pop-Tart. I'm just saying that in the end, we know which one produces better for us. One is a harder option for the moment that produces fruit. One is an easier option for the moment that doesn't produce much at all. And this is the way your spiritual life is. Trials produce. And when you're going through a trial, you have to try in your trial to think about the result instead of the immediate uncomfortableness. Hey, listening family, if you're new to Walk in Truth, my name is Michael Lance. I'm the senior pastor of Living Truth Christian Fellowship in the city of Corona in Southern California. Hey, recently I've written a book called Suit Up, Putting on the Full Armor of God. It shows you how to put on what God has provided so that you can stand strong in the spiritual battle and stand strong against temptation with the resources that God provides. This book is available at the store at walkintruth.com. Go to walkintruth.com, click on the store, click on the book. I'll get you a signed copy and your donation will help support Walk in Truth and help us reach out to more people. Again, the book is Suit Up, Putting on the Full Armor of God, available at walkintruth.com. That's walkintruth.com. 
www.walkintruth.com. Thanks for listening to Walk in Truth. Pastor Michael would love to hear from you. You can write him when you visit walkintruth.com.